Good. Um, thanks very much. I'm already sweating uh, like a maniac here, so I must be anticipating a, a good OTJR grilling um, in the Q&A. Um, thanks very much, Miles. Thanks to the OTJR committee for uh, the kind invitation to come back and, and speak to you all. Uh, it's always really nice to come back and see OTJR flourishing uh, as it is at the moment. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, will have already heard about OTJR's plans for this year, because I'm sure Miles would have told you, but I think the the upcoming uh, justiceinfo.net uh, project, which is going to be a big global platform for discussions about transitional justice, in which OTJR is playing a central role, is extremely exciting. And I have to say, it's the kind of thing that I think we always hoped OTJR would do when we first set this group up in a very motley fashion uh, back in 2007. So, uh, yeah, the committee deserves an enormous amount of congratulations, and, and Miles in particular, for, for steering the ship in, in good directions. So, um, that's, that's really great stuff. Uh, what, what I'm uh, here to talk about is issues relating to the politics of the International Criminal Court uh, in Africa. And I want to do this through a, a very particular lens. I, I want to do it through uh, a concept um, that I'm calling distant justice or, or remote justice. And I'll explain in a, in a little moment what I mean by that and, and why I think it's a concept that's so crucial to how uh, international criminal law sees itself and specifically how the ICC uh, sees itself at the moment. And I want to focus on uh, a discussion of the politics of the ICC by looking at, at two countries specifically, because we could be here all day if we tried to cover all the African states where the ICC is currently working. So I want to focus really on uh, what the court's doing in Uganda uh, and, and the DRC. And I think these two cases are really important because they're the first two situation countries that the ICC got involved in uh, in Africa, and I think some really important precedents were set, not just for how the court operates across the continent, but how the ICC functions as a, an institution in its entirety. And as Miles mentioned in the introduction, uh, this presentation is based on a, on a book that I've now been working on, I think, for about eight years. In fact, this book is older than OTJR. Um, and most of you will be sick to death of me saying that I'm working on this book on the ICC. Um, it'll be nice soon to stop having to answer those questions, because I'm hoping the book is going to be out before too long. Uh, but I've been doing fieldwork in Uganda and Congo on the work of the ICC since 2006. Uh, I've conducted about 600 interviews uh, with uh, ICC actors in The, in the Hague, uh, political and judicial uh, actors in Uganda and Congo, and also uh, communities affected by violence. So I'm going to draw pretty heavily on, on the fieldwork that I've done in, in, in these two places. And I guess what I'm fundamentally interested in is in, in the book is, is how does a global court uh, engage in, in cultures that it's often very unfamiliar with? What happens when we uh, look at a global institution with a partic particular set of uh, expertise and a particular type of personnel, many of whom uh, haven't had a huge amount of experience in Africa? What happens when they start to get their hands dirty in places that perhaps they, they don't know an enormous amount about? Uh, and doubly, I think that's difficult when we're talking about African states that have a range of fragilities uh, in terms of the conflicts that they've experienced, but also often very unpredictable forms of, of national politics. What, what happens when international justice gets involved in those kinds of settings? I want to do three things in this presentation. Uh, firstly, I want to say something about this concept of, of distant justice or, or remote justice, and, and I guess try and explain uh, why it's so important uh, to international criminal law and specifically how the ICC itself as an institution tries to embody an idea of, of distant justice. Secondly, I want to point out what I see as uh, the major problems that this concept leads to uh, in practice uh, in Uganda and Congo. And then thirdly, I want to 
say something about what I think this means for the ICC looking to the future. Is it in fact possible for the court to overcome what I see as some pretty fundamental uh, problems um, at the moment? And what I want to try and argue, I think, is perhaps a little bit more than uh, what a lot of commentators are saying about the ICC at the moment. It's very common to say, well, the court claims to be apolitical. It claims to be detached from politics, but of course it is fundamentally a, a political institution. I think that's an argument that's been made uh, pretty substantially, and it's, it's kind of it's hard to argue with, perhaps because it doesn't have a huge amount of meaning. Um, I want to try and argue something a little bit more specific, which is, yes, it's true, the ICC is a political institution that claims to be apolitical, but it still holds on to this notion of distance and, and remoteness as a virtue. And I think that it's that idea that actually leads it to many of the, the key problems that it's facing in Africa uh, today. And I want to use Uganda and, and Congo really to show some deep structural issues with the court. Before I get into those three things, I actually want to start with an anecdote um, that I want to then draw on in kind of analytical terms, because I think it's, a, it's an anecdote that perhaps embodies a lot of the substantive points that, that I want to make in this lecture, and it's actually the anecdote that I'm, I'm going to start the book with. Um, and it relates to the case of alleged Congolese warlord Bosco Entengunda, uh, who the media have terribly termed uh, the Terminator. Uh, many of you will be familiar with the Entengunda case. Uh, Ntengunda has a long history of involvement in various rebel groups in eastern Congo, uh, beginning in uh, Ituri district in the early 2000s and involvement in various rebel groups, especially in North and South Kivu uh, more recently. Some of you might remember the story of Ntengunda last year uh, turning himself in uh, quite miraculously to uh, the, the US Embassy in Kigali. Some of you were in fact in Kigali um, as I was when, when this happened. It was quite a remarkable uh, story, I think, for many reasons. Firstly, that Enten Gundy gave himself up, uh, that unlike most of the other ICC indictees, he voluntarily uh, relinquished himself to the court. Uh, secondly, that he chose to do so through the US Embassy, uh, given that the US has been no significant friend of the ICC uh, to date. Uh, and I guess thirdly, uh, that Enten Gunda now is in The Hague um, awaiting uh, prosecution and I guess this will be a fairly messy trial given his involvement in so many different rebel groups over the years. Now, that's the picture that I guess the ICC gives of the Enten Gunda case. Uh, it's seen as, a, I think, a kind of flagship moment for the court that here was a rebel leader who at that time was involved with the M23 rebel group in Eastern Congo who decided that uh, things were getting a bit hot and sticky for him in the jungles of North Kivu and it would be preferable for him to send himself to The Hague. Uh, so the ICC made much mileage out of this and said, look, you know, we've, we've arrived as an institution when suspects begin to voluntarily hand themselves over. Uh, the reality was a little bit messier. Uh, and I know that it's messier now because I, I've interviewed a, a range of actors at the US Embassy uh, who all kind of corroborate a very similar story which is that Ntengunda turned up on a Tuesday morning at the US Embassy uh, in a taxi, um, and he was kind of dressed in very ordinary clothes, a pair of jeans, sweaty t-shirt like my good self, and a blue baseball cap. Um, he, had, he had come from, from Eastern Congo uh, overnight. I think the Rwandan authorities knew very well uh, that, that he was traveling at the time, but they gave him sort of safe passage. Ntengunda then went up to the front desk um, of the US Embassy and said, um, I'm Bosco Ntengunda and I'm here to hand myself over to the ICC via the US Embassy. 
And the person who was sitting behind the desk uh, at reception at the embassy looked at him and said, do you have an appointment, sir? <laughs> um, and Enter Gunner said, um, don't you know who I am? You know, I'm, I'm the Terminator, apparently. Um, they said, well, even the Terminator needs an appointment. So uh, several security guards told me that Entengunda spent two and a half hours wandering around in the Kigali heat in the car park, a little bit uh, surprised by the fact uh, that no one knew who he was and no one seemed very interested in his attempt to hand himself over to international justice. So uh, he had to go back to the front desk and kind of plead much more fiercely um, for his case. And eventually word travelled up the chain in the embassy. Someone came down, picked him up, took him upstairs. He was then kind of processed. There was a three-day, uh, I guess, waiting period, I, I guess in which the US was trying to work out what to do with a double-edged sword. Um, the US, on the one hand, had been a big part of various peace processes trying to, to rein people like Enthengunda in. Uh, but suddenly, its position on the ICC was called into question, and it wasn't really sure what to do here. But eventually, a kind of a deal was struck. The, the US agreed to hand Enthengunda um, over to the court. But that's not where the story ends, because on the night that Enthengunda was uh, supposed to go to The Hague, and I've heard this from uh, one High Commissioner and, and an ambassador um, in Kigali, uh, five um, sort of diplomatic representatives of a certain seniority all met at Kigali Airport to try and work out uh, how to get Enthengunda to The Hague, because the Dutch government had paid for the petrol uh, to get uh, Entengunda's flight uh, from the Netherlands to Rwanda, but no one was sure whose responsibility it was to pay for him to get back. And the Dutch were saying, well, we've already done our bit, um, and this is a time of austerity, and uh, our budgets are pretty tight, so we're looking at these four other diplomatic missions in Rwanda to do the job. Um, literally, a hat was passed around, and various credit cards were exchanged to try and come up with the, whatever it was, $90,000 or something to pay for the fuel. I guess it was probably more than that. Um, unfortunately, the, the credit card machines at Kigali Airport don't work too well, so two diplomatic uh, envoys had to go back to their um, embassies and come back with wads of US dollars to pay for the petrol to put Ntinganda on the flight to get him to The Hague. So um, this was a little bit messier and a little bit murkier um, than perhaps was reported at the time. Now, I guess the reason I tell that story initially is to show just how messy uh, international justice can be in reality, but I do want to try and say something a little bit more substantive about that episode uh, in just a moment, so I'll, I'll come back to it. Let, let me, I guess, kind of do some very brief theorising around this idea of distance and, and what it means uh, in international criminal law generally and what this concept, I think, means for the ICC uh, specifically. I think, to put it bluntly, a notion of justice being distant from the societies in which it is enacted really is at the heart of the international criminal legal enterprise. There is a huge amount of conceptual and practical energy put into the idea that international justice is supposed to fundamentally separate itself out from the places where it's, it's enacted. And there are different kind of components to this idea of distance. I think on the one hand, there's a, a kind of a philosophical idea at the heart of international criminal law, uh, broadly, around uh, the need for critical detachment, uh, the need for justice to be handed down in a way that is not uh, beholden to political and other interests. Uh, someone like Gary Simpson at LSE talks about uh, impartial, majestic justice. This idea that international criminal law uh, should attain some notion of majestic impartiality by, by really removing itself from the arena in which crimes were committed and, and where affected communities live. But I think there's also a kind of a political uh, component 
to this idea of distance. And it's perhaps an idea that international justice gets us out of a very messy situation. So there are, kind of, there are a whole range of metaphors around international criminal law uh, being kind of pristine, being cleaner, and that the places where crimes were committed are, are messy, are dirty, and, and are highly politicised. And I think at the heart of all of this, in terms of international criminal law, is, is a notion that international criminal law is superior, um, both to domestic politics, which it's trying to rise above, but also to a large extent superior to national justice, which is often seen as uh, open to political manipulation. So there's a, a notion of superiority that's embedded in the concept of distant justice right from the outset. And that's why international justice has to extricate itself, it has to insulate itself from uh, political machinations on the ground. But this is perhaps where it gets more interesting. I think in some elements of international criminal law, there's also uh, an objective to sanitise and civilise the very messy political situation on the ground. So international criminal law has to both separate itself out in order to deliver impartial justice, but to a certain extent it also has a role in trying to change the way that politics happens in the places where crimes have been committed. I think I heard this articulation uh, most clearly um, in the days when I was a DPhil student here in Oxford and I was doing research in Rwanda. And I was specifically looking at the Gachacha community courts um, that have dealt with 400,000 genocide cases in Rwanda. And I marched off to Arusha in Tanzania to look at the UN tribunal um, for reasons that actually didn't ever really form part of my thesis. This is typically how details work, right? You know, you do one thing and then you change your mind and you hope this thing kind of comes together in the end. Um, and I was very green, very naive, very unsure. And I marched into uh, a certain ICTR judge's office, um, you know, with my list of very, you know, decisive questions. And uh, one of which was, Mr. Judge, uh, your ICTR statute says that the tribunal is supposed to contribute to national reconciliation in Rwanda. Uh, so how are you going on that particular front? And, and have you been to Rwanda recently to kind of judge the effectiveness of the tribunal in delivering uh, national reconciliation in Rwanda? To which the judge sort of turned to me and looked at me like I was some sort of space alien and said, um, well, of course I haven't been to Rwanda. Uh, and in fact, I don't want to go to Rwanda, and if I can help it, I will never go to Rwanda. Because to go there would mean forming relationships, uh, becoming kind of emotional about the crime scenes, and all of this would uh, block me from the kind of impartial, detached judgment that I'm supposed to hand down as, as an international uh, judge. So I think in the very early days, um, I heard this kind of articulation of, of a certain idea that justice had to be distant. And that even going to a place and kind of seeing the impact of your work could undermine uh, this approach to, to, to impartiality. Um, so I think in international criminal law, this, this concept uh, actually goes really deep. And of course, it has a very long history. I mean, we, if we wanted to, we could trace it back to, to Kant and onwards through Rawls, an idea that we make uh, just decisions when we, when we kind of insulate ourselves from, from political messiness, to put it kind of bluntly. What's interesting, of course, in the Rwandan case is that there's, I think, a direct uh, sort of counter to that idea of justice that we see in the practice of something like the Chacha, which is a justice system of people under trees and in courtyards uh, trying to judge their own genocide cases. And typically it involves judges who are intimately connected to the people involved in the crimes uh, and to uh, the, the locations and, and, and the actions of, of the genocide. 
the view of Gachachi, in essence, is one of engagement. It's one of, in fact, justice being delivered best when it's done by people who are intimately connected to uh, the issues around the crime. So, in a case like Rwanda, there's a kind of a direct counter or a direct scepticism, I think, about some of these notions of detachment. If we talk about the ICC specifically, I think these ideas of distant or remote justice are, are absolutely central to how the court operates. Uh, of course, it's based in The Hague, so it has a European headquarters, uh, which is not a, a neutral decision, as I'll discuss briefly in a moment. The ICC, I think, and I, I, I get this particularly from interviews with officials in The Hague, sees itself as a kind of a global institution with a, a sort of a roving mandate to deal with genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity wherever they may be committed. And that the idea of the ICC is based on a kind of global consensus uh, around what justice means. A global consensus that is in opposition to a range of particularities that we might see in other parts of the world. And in many of my interviews, especially in the Office of the Prosecutor, this uh, stressing on the global consensus was very important when they talked about what they thought they were doing. Uh, that we had the Rome Conference in 1998 to build the ICC. This was a moment for all the nations of the world to come together and to agree about a particular conception of how justice should be delivered. And it could be standardised and it could be disembedded from a whole range of differing viewpoints of justice around the world. And we could kind of build consensus around this. As a result, the ICC uses deliberately in almost every single component of the institution generalist staff with a very particular technical expertise. And I'll talk about the importance of, of personnel and expertise in a moment, but there's been a very deliberate strategy in the Office of the Prosecutor, uh, even amongst Defence Counsel, the Registry and the judges, uh, to put a, a, a big emphasis on, 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 on international staff who have a kind of a general toolkit and in most cases don't have any former engagement with the countries where, uh, where the court will work. In terms of the Office of the Prosecutor, this has meant putting a big emphasis on uh, very small, flexible teams of investigators who deliberately don't spend very much time in the field conducting their investigations. And you can look at the prosecutor's policy papers over the last uh, five or six years to see how important uh, the prosecutor's office sees the, the need for teams to get in and out very quickly. They talk about the difficulties of security, they talk about the difficulties of political manipulation, and the longer we leave our staff in the field, the more open they will be to, to these kinds of problems. Uh, to the extent that uh, the prosecutor's office now will only leave its investigators in the field for a maximum of 10 days at a time um, for all of these, these different kinds um, of reasons. So I think that, I mean, I have other things to say about kind of distance and remoteness, but I, I'm sort of looking at the clock and noticing that the, the time's ticking. So I think that kind of gives you a sense of the kind of the, the philosophy um, that underpins international criminal law generally, but in practical terms, how this gets embodied in the ICC, how it sees itself as a global institution that in many ways doesn't want to spend a huge amount of time uh, in the places where, where it's operating. Um, and I'll flesh that out a little bit more in, in just a moment. So let me move to the, my second theme, which is, I guess, really to show why this concept matters in, in practical terms. Uh, what kind of effect is it having uh, in Uganda and Congo, and what does this say uh, about the court more generally? I want to point out, I guess, five major problems 
that I think this idea of remote justice leads to when we talk about the ICC in Africa. I could, you can probably think of others, but for the sake of uh, some degree of brevity anyway, uh, and so that we're not here until kingdom come, I want to just briefly um, pick what I see as the, the kind of the five main uh, consequences that this concept has. The first problem that the ICC faces, I think, in terms of its insistence upon doing justice in a kind of distant way, uh, is that it's having troubles around selecting which situation countries to work in and specifically which cases uh, to, to focus its energies on. And I think, in essence, that the problem of distance in this regard is one of real political naivete about what it means to do international justice in Africa. What was startling, I think, to me from the early days of my fieldwork was to see the fundamental lack of African expertise, especially in the prosecutor's office. Uh, that they really only had one individual uh, who'd spent any significant amount of time uh, in Africa, and that person was a Cote d'Ivoire specialist who suddenly was in charge of many of the, the, the Congo uh, investigations. And I think the reason why, uh, firstly, the ICC strategically focused on Africa from the outset and why it didn't bring much Africa expertise into the institution was it believed that Africa would be easy. I think there was a genuine sense, not just within the prosecutor's office, but more broadly than that at the outset, that as a new institution that was trying to build uh, a track record, that was trying to build legitimacy, uh, Africa was a bit of an, uh, an open goal. Uh, it would be easy because no one would argue with dealing with serious crimes in Africa. There would be a kind of an emotional uh, legitimacy uh, that the continent would, would give. And also an expectation that a lot of the difficult work of investigations had already been done, particularly by human rights groups that had been uh, based in Africa for a very long time and had been gathering evidence about uh, genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. So I think there was a, an idea at the outset that, that Africa would allow the court to get some, some very early and some very quick results. But I think as a result of this lack of sort of Africa understanding within the institution, uh, it allowed the court very early on to be profoundly manipulated by African governments. And I think the Ugandan and the Congolese cases bear this out <coughs> quite directly. Now, many of you, I'm sure, are students of African politics, and you will know Bayard's theory of, of extroversion, and the, particularly the ability of African governments to use international institutions to their own ends, uh, to, in many ways, cohere their own activities with the interests and the activities of international actors, uh, and to shift that to domestic purposes that often are in direct conflict with the interests of, of international actors. Well, uh, the ICC in Africa has been no different in that regard, and, and I think particularly in, in Uganda and Congo. The ICC left itself open to manipulation uh, by African governments, I think, in some very naive ways. One of the main ways that it did it in the Uganda and Congo cases was the court actively chased those two situations. Whenever the ICC is accused of being a neo-colonial actor in Africa, which is a very common critique of the court, the typical response by usually the prosecutor will be to say, well, many of these African states voluntarily referred their situations to us. So how can you call us neo-colonial when we're only doing the bidding of these African states? We're only getting involved because we've been invited. Well, I think in Uganda and Congo, that misses out a, a key part of the story, and, and this is something that I've been researching in, in, in these two countries, that, that the court actually made the first move, that there was an initiation of these cases by The Hague uh, to the governments in Kampala and Kinshasa, in, in essence to say, getting the court involved will be in your own interests. 
And there was at least a 12-month negotiation period um, with these two governments. Seems like, the, uh, seems like the Hague are in charge of the lights as well, by the looks. Um, before these states, in fact, agreed to get the court involved. So why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it gave massive advantage to these governments before the cases even got underway. It meant, in essence, that certain deals were perhaps done in the background. And I think one of the main effects of that has been that we haven't seen ICC prosecutions of government actors in the two countries. I think one of the conditions that was given by the Museveni and the Kabila governments was if we're going to invite the court in to investigate cases, it could only concern non-state actors and government actors would, would have to be insulated. Now, the difficulty here, I think, is that in essence what that has done is it, it has emboldened the two governments uh, and we can see that in terms of electoral violence in both Congo and Uganda after the ICC has got involved. That uh, in both Congo and Uganda we've seen uh, police and the army uh, target civilians and target protesters, um, large-scale killings and, and, and other forms of, uh, of criminality, even though the ICC has already been involved. And the ICC is very fond of saying that one of its objectives is to deter crimes. Well, I think in the case of Uganda and Congo, it, this looks more like emboldening uh, the crimes of these two states. And I think a lot of this has to do with, with political uh, manipulation and the court's perhaps uh, deliberate naivete uh, in allowing itself to be used in these ways. For that reason, I'm also personally sceptical of the idea that the ICC is a neo-colonialist actor. Because I think the idea of neo-colonialism uh, insists on the ICC being seen as a very strong actor and, and African states and African governments being seen as fundamentally weak. I think actually the experience of Uganda and Congo inverts <coughs> that and suggests that the ICC in certain ways is a very weak institution that relies heavily on, on state cooperation. And that African states are actually very savvy at using a range of international institutions of, of which the latest uh, is the ICC. So I think we have good reasons uh, to be sceptical of, of the neo-colonialist critique of, of the court. Secondly, and this is kind of a connected issue, I, I think the, the ICC's notion of distant justice means that it ends up having highly problematic relationships with domestic justice institutions that the court at the moment isn't entirely sure how it should engage with, with justice on the ground uh, in, in Africa. And I think at heart, this notion of distance, as I kind of articulated it at the beginning, means that international justice is fundamentally sceptical of national justice. It sees itself as superior. It tends to characterise national justice as open to political manipulation and tends to characterise itself as superior in, in, in that regard. Immediately, that's difficult for the ICC because, in the same breath, it will also argue that it is complementary to domestic justice. It will say that we are essentially in some sort of partnership with domestic actors. And that, if anything, the ICC is supposed to be a backstop. It's supposed to be a kind of a secondary actor that will only get involved when domestic institutions are unwilling or unable uh, to investigate and prosecute their own crimes. Um, but I think, again, what we're seeing in Uganda and Congo is something very, very different from that. And in many ways, uh, some of the tensions that we see in the ICC are not new. Uh, Nikki Palmer, who's here in the room, is about to publish a book with OUP on issues of concurrent justice in relation to the ICTR, the Rwandan National Courts and Gachacha. And without completely bastardising Nikki's argument, I think what she's showing is that, in fact, these courts, while they claim to be in concert with one another are fundamentally competitive. 
They don't like each other. They're fundamentally skeptical of each other. For example, the international actors often look down upon the national courts and say, well, they clearly will not deliver international standards of justice unlike our good selves who embody this every single step of the way. So if we are interested in ideas of how different levels of justice connect, uh, we need to understand how they see each other, how they kind of view each other. And I think at core, there is a scepticism that international justice has about actors at the lower level. In the case of Uganda and Congo, you can see that in very practical terms. And my argument, in fact, would be that the court should never have been involved uh, in these two places uh, in the first instance, because it couldn't show on its own legal terms uh, that these cases were admissible at the international level. If we look at the Congo case, this one I think has been particularly contorted, uh, all of the court's investigations, bar one, uh, to date have dealt with Ituri district in northeastern Congo. To a certain extent, it's understandable why the ICC decided to get involved in Ituri and not elsewhere in Congo. It's because when the court first came into being, Ituri was ablaze uh, with kinds of violence that at that particular time weren't happening to the same extent uh, elsewhere. Uh, and so the court decided to, to go in there. The difficulty for the court was that in terms of the Congolese judiciary, the place where standards of justice have increased the most in the last 10 years or 10 or 15 years uh, is in fact in Ituri. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that the Ituri courts have undergone a massive reform process uh, with the backing of the European Union. Uh, there's been a complete uh, change of judicial and legal personnel. New courtrooms have been built, new prisons have been built. And at the time when the ICC got involved, and this is something that my research throws up very strongly, uh, is that there were already domestic investigations into the Aturi warlords that the, that the ICC then showed interest in. Uh, there's a very complicated legal kind of story as to how these cases still ended up in The Hague. One of the main reasons is that the Congolese authorities in Kinshasa gave the green light to the ICC and said, we will not stand in your way. In fact, Kabila's government claimed that they were unable and unwilling to prosecute uh, these cases. The ICC swallowed that story and allowed these individuals to be prosecuted. But that's a very different story from the one that you hear from the judicial actors in the Bunya courts themselves, who in fact can show you the details of the investigations that were already underway. And they were completely flummoxed by the fact that these cases were basically whisked from under their nose and, and taken off to be dealt with in a, in a very distant courtroom. The message that that sent to the, the Ituri courts was extremely mixed. Uh, there was a sense of, we've been told that we have to reform ourselves, and we've taken this funding from the EU, and we've tried to change our practices in some fundamental ways. But when it comes to the crunch, namely dealing with high-profile suspects that could be prosecuted in our own courtrooms and viewed by our own population, we're told that we're not up to scratch, and these cases get taken to a foreign jurisdiction. So there's massive mixed messages going on in a case like that. Uh, that issue did arise in two of the Ituri warlord cases, uh, the, the Katanga and the Ngujolo cases, uh, but the judges essentially came down on the side um, of the, the ICC prosecutor and said, we don't think that uh, the Congolese authorities are serious about dealing with these cases. The problem was that no one really bothered to ask the judicial actors closest to the action, namely those in Ituri, instead the word of Kinshasa authorities was taken. So I think a real mistake was made there. What's interesting is that subsequent to 
the ICC cases in Ituri. Um, the Bunya courts the, in the capital of Ituri um, have shown their track record of dealing with war crimes and crimes against humanity. They've now dealt with, with six high-level individuals, including doing something that the ICC has never done, which is to deal with state actors. So in many ways, the Ituri courts, I think, are delivering a higher standard or at least a more politically difficult form of justice than the ICC is, and it really begs the question of how those cases ended up in The Hague in the first place. More briefly, in terms of Uganda, the big sticking point there is, of course, the Ugandan authorities in dealing with Joseph Kony and the LRA said, we're unwilling and we're unable to prosecute the cases of the LRA because we can't capture them. We can't arrest these individuals and actually get them in the dock. So, again, there was a state referral from Uganda to the court to deal with those cases. The difficulty, of course, is the ICC also can't secure uh, the arrest of these particular individuals. So the reaction in many quarters in Uganda is to say, well, how is international justice better in this sense? We would promise that something would happen internationally that didn't happen domestically. And in actual fact, international justice is facing the same difficulties that we've been are facing, in which case, what, what is its worth uh, in this particular um, instance? So some real big questions around uh, selection of, uh, sorry, of relationships between the ICC and domestic justice, and I think some real negative consequences of a scepticism that uh, domestic justice is up to scratch. Now, it would be fair, I think, to point out that there is some pushback against this idea within the ICC at the moment, and I think to a large extent it's coming from the judges. Some of you will be familiar with the Al-Sanusi case uh, in Libya, which is, of course, hugely controversial at the moment. Uh, the ICC judges have said, in fact, that case can go back to Libya, even though Libya is in the sort of conflict condition that it is um, at the moment. Uh, that uh, particular judgment has been appealed by the prosecutor and it kind of remains to be seen how that plays out. But it does show that perhaps among some of the judges there is an increasing deference to national institutions. But... Uh, it's a bit early, I think, to say whether that's solidified or not. Uh, and the Simone Bagbo case in Cote d'Ivoire is another example of a case that the ICC prosecutor had pursued, but that now is underway uh, in Abidjan. Uh, and again, perhaps that shows that there is some sort of change on, on this particular point. Let me be much quicker in my last, in my kind of my last three problems, because I've kind of laboured the first two a little bit too much. I'm going to race through the kind of next ones and keep an eye on the clock. The third big problem that I think stems from a notion of the ICC needing to deliver uh, distant or remote justice is that most of its investigations have been extremely substandard. And this, I think, gets us really down into the kind of nitty-gritty of what happens when a foreign court starts to operate in very complex African conflict zones. And again, I think the problems here stem from a lack of African personnel at almost any level um, of the institution. Uh, and, it come, and it stems from this problem of not spending enough time in the field. Um, and investigators being limited to, to 10 days. In essence, what we've seen um, really from day one is that the Office of the Prosecutor has been cutting corners uh, in its investigations. And as a result, uh, the prosecutor's cases at the trial stage have either just been scraping through to a prosecution, as we saw with Lubanga, a case that was stalled twice by the judges because the evidence was so weak, or we've seen cases collapse entirely. Uh, like in Barushimana in Congo, and as it seems we will probably see in several of the, the Kenyan cases. This, I think, stems again from the ICC's insistence on using generalist international staff in very small investigative teams. And it's exacerbated by something that has evolved over time, which I don't think anyone could have predicted in 2002, 
when the court came into being, which is that the ICC would end up operating in nine African states simultaneously. What the Office of the Prosecutor has done is to use these small flexible teams of investigators, often with the same investigators covering multiple countries. So when I first started doing this research in 2006, uh, two of the key investigators that I was interviewing at the time were covering both uh, Ituri and Northern Uganda and Central African Republic. These were individuals, one was an Australian, one was a Brit, uh, who previously had never been to Africa. Not that they had never worked in Africa, they had never been to Africa. And their very first mission was to northern Uganda, and then within a matter of months, they found themselves suddenly in Ituri, having to do crimes in contiguous states, which also has its own political ram sort of consequences. And then about a year later, also found themselves covering Central African Republic. I mean, talk about people who are you know, destined for burnout. This was kind of a classic case of that. Um, on top of that, what we have seen as a very consistent prosecutorial strategy has been to build cases on the basis of human rights reports produced by third parties. So if we look at the Aturi cases and the LRA cases, even the decision to pick certain suspects and then to decide which specific crimes to charge these individuals with was done particularly on the basis of Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International reports. And if you look at the way that the charges are formulated in the prosecutor's uh, documents, you can in fact see the fingerprints of those, those institutions. Furthermore, when it got down to actual practicalities, what the court has done in almost all of the African situations, not just Uganda and Congo, has been to use intermediaries to conduct investigations. So to use often local human rights actors who are embedded in their communities, who have contacts, etc., etc., uh, to do the work. In Ituri, I think this has been most controversial because what it meant was sending local human rights actors into the middle of ongoing conflict. Uh, to find witnesses, to gather um, evidence, and to help uh, the court build a case. Uh, and that was an issue that the judges then picked up on in all of the Aturi cases and said, this is a problem. Because uh, what was happening, in essence, was the prosecutor's office wasn't really testing the evidence that they were getting from their intermediaries. They were sort of taking the intermediaries almost at their word uh, that they had kind of tested the evidence. By the time it got to the trial, the defence were kind of punching holes in this and cases were essentially collapsing. A very good example of this was, perhaps most embarrassingly for the prosecutor's office, um, day one of its very first trial, Lubanga. The prosecution thought, well, we've narrowed the charges against Lubanga down to crimes that only involve child soldiers. And this was very controversial because, as anyone who's worked in Ituri knows, Lubanga is complicit in everything under the sun, murder, torture, mass pillage, you name it. But the prosecution decided to focus on child soldiers. Um, so the star witness on day one of the trial uh, was uh, an Ituri child soldier, um, a young boy of about, I think he was 12 or 13, um, who stood up to kind of give his testimony, and his opening statement was, um, I've never met Thomas Lubanga, I don't know who he is, and I don't know why I'm here. When the defence got their chance to cross-examine uh, this young man, it sort of uh, emerged that he'd been coached by a local human rights group. He basically had memorised a script that he was then expected to kind of regurgitate on the stand. Uh, and under the pressure of being whisked to The Hague and asked to give this evidence, he'd forgotten what the script was. And so he had to admit to the fact that, in fact, he wasn't connected to this case in any shape or form. Uh, when the judges kind of probed this a little bit further, they discovered that this was largely because of this reliance upon intermediaries. Uh, that the, the reason this individual was lying was because he had been found by a local human rights group 
Uh, his validity hadn't really been tested by the prosecutor, and by the time this all emerged, it, it was a bit too late. Uh, just to kind of rub salt in the wound, uh, the then prosecutor, Luis Marino Acampo, wasn't even in the courtroom on day one of that trial. He was in Davos uh, in Geneva trying to kind of raise money for the court. Uh, so I think he got a fairly frenzied phone call from his deputy, who's now the prosecutor, Fatou Ben Souda, to say we're in a bit of trouble here on day one because our star witness, in fact, doesn't connect to this situation at all. And there are various other examples. I mean, another one is uh, the Ambaru Shimada case, um, another Congolese warlord. And I should divulge a kind of an interest in this case because I was involved with the, the defence uh, counsel in Ambaru Shimada. Uh, he's allegedly a, a, a leader in the FDLR, a Hutu-dominated rebel group in eastern Congo. My involvement in the Mbaru Shimana case didn't make me many friends in Kigali, who said, why are you defending uh, one of these leaders of a Hutu group that wishes our extermination? So these things have kind of knock-on effects. The Mbaru Shimana case was even, I think, one level shoddier than anything we saw in Ituri. Uh, because uh, the prosecutor basically just gave over Human Rights Watch reports and said they talk about Mbarashimana, therefore he must be guilty. Now that sounds mad. You must think I'm cutting corners in my description of that case. You can look it up on the website. I mean, there was no kind of value added by the prosecution. Their prosecutorial basis was to say these human rights groups are very valid. They've been working in the field for all these years and they have shown that this man has been doing X, Y and Z. Uh, and of course the defence had an absolute field day. That case didn't even come to trial, it was knocked down at the, the confirmation of charges case. So again, this shows I think the kind of the cutting of corners and what, ma what happens when you don't have uh, local expertise and when you don't spend enough time in the field. Um, fourth, in terms of problems, let me just kind of say this very briefly. Stemming from issues of remote justice and distant justice is that I think the ICC has very unresolved relations with peace processes and demobilization processes in Africa. So one of the other areas in which we see the ICC really struggling is to articulate a clear notion of how it will operate when there are very delicate peace talks going on in various conflict zones and how they will relate to the attempt to demobilize combatants. And I think we should be perhaps slightly sympathetic to the court here because it's not alone in being confused about how all of these things connect. In many ways, the ICC is just a symptom of a wider international malaise, which is how to do international justice while peace talks are underway and while demobilisation processes are also happening. Particularly because peace processes and DDR processes often involve some notion of an amnesty. And of course, this issue most came to a head uh, in the case of Uganda, which many of you will know, uh, during the Juba peace talks between 2006 and 2008 when we had a situation in which there were ICC arrest warrants out for the LRA leadership, but there was also a domestic amnesty process that was in play. And once the LRA got to the negotiating table, they spent most of their time trying to get the arrest warrants off their back. And it was a massive distraction to the rest of the negotiations and ultimately the LRA uh, refused, uh, refused to sign the agreement. I don't think that's the only reason they refused to sign the agreement, but it, it certainly contributed. I think the difficulty here, and we saw this all the way through the Juba talks, was that on the one hand, the ICC prosecutor in particular was saying, the court is an apolitical actor. We hover above the fray. It's for others to decide how these peace talks play out. The court isn't really supposed to get involved in these kind of messy situations. But in the midst of the peace talks, the prosecutor kept intervening, kept saying things like, the domestic amnesty doesn't hold or 
this potential use of traditional justice, even to deal with the LRA leadership, which was one of the issues that arose at the talks, would be invalid, and that we in the Hague couldn't possibly accept this. So there's this kind of confusion in many ways, I think, at the heart of the ICC's even kind of self-conception. Is it in fact really wedded to this idea that it should be apolitical and hovering above the fray? Or in fact, does it want to start to intervene in often very messy political situations? Uganda would be one example of that. I think another uh, example of the court struggling in some of these political processes on the ground is in relation to DDR. Um, here's an example. Comes back to our good friend, uh, Inton Gunda. Um, he of the US Embassy at the beginning of my talk. What's really fascinating, I think, about the Inton Gunda case is he would have been eligible for an amnesty under the DDR process that's been in place between Eastern Congo and Rwanda for the last 12 or 13 years. Uh, Intengunda is a Rwandan national, so he qualifies on that front. Uh, he is claiming involvement in significant crimes, um, so that kind of fulfills the second. Uh, and he was available in the kind of the border regions of Congo and Rwanda, so probably in legal terms, uh, he could have taken up an amnesty and gone through the DDR process. So why did he send himself to the Hague? One reason is I don't think he was that keen to hand himself over to the Rwandan authorities. I think he was pretty worried about Rwanda, what Rwanda was going to do. So, so the, the Hague was a kind of safe haven in that sense. Um, the second issue, I think, is that in Tenganda, even though he's committed very serious crimes in North and South Kivu very recently, uh, he's not charged with crimes at the moment connected to those particular places. He's also in the same Ituri batch as Lubanga, Katanga, Ingujola and the others. And I think he would have been watching those cases and seeing that the evidence in fact was very weak against those individuals. He probably suspects that the evidence against him is pretty weak. Um, he's already got, he'd been sniffing around for defence counsel um, in The Hague uh, in the months leading up to when he went to Kigali. Um, and I think he fancies his chances. I think he thinks he's got a better chance of getting some degree of safety if he subjects himself to international justice and eventually sees uh, his, his case collapse. But nevertheless, uh, I think there was a potential real contradiction there uh, between the fact that this individual was indicted uh, for very serious crimes uh, by the ICC, but when, uh, when it came to the crunch, he easily could have taken up another internationally sanctioned process namely the DDR, he could have taken up an amnesty and I think there would, have been, there would have been a real fight there. So that's an issue for the court, is if it's going to frame itself as political, uh, sorry, as, as apolitical, it needs to recognise that it is dipping into very, very messy political machinations on the ground and it needs to give a much clearer articulation of how it engages with those processes. Um, and peace processes and DDR processes would be just, just, one, uh, just two examples of that. Finally in terms of the problems that I think stem from this insistence on, on remote justice or distance justice is uh, in some ways I guess perhaps the most important which is that the ICC still has very poor relations with affected communities and I think it still seeks some clearer uh, protocol for how to engage with communities that have, have suffered violence and Uganda and Congo are really good examples of this because in trying to distance itself from the spaces where conflict happens, what the court has done is it's firstly shied away from increasingly consequentialist arguments. It has in fact stopped saying things like, especially the prosecutor's office has stopped saying things like, our role is to deliver peace. That was a big part of the ICC's rhetoric in the early days. So particularly when the ICC first went into Uganda, I remember hearing Prosecutor Ocampo at a press conference in Kampala and he said, 
the role of the ICC is to end this conflict, namely the northern Ugandan conflict, and we can do it in six months. So not only did he think that the court could bring the conflict to an end, he had a pretty fixed timetable as to how this was going to happen. I think that was met with a certain scepticism, especially by people who were living in northern Uganda at the time. Um, by the time we got to Congo, though, about a year later, and in the interim there had been no movement on the LRA cases, none of those individuals looked like they were going to get to the dock, uh, the prosecutor's uh, sort of self-justification uh, had changed entirely. This was no longer about the ICC delivering peace. Suddenly it was, we are a legal institution. We are a judicial institution. Our job is not to get involved in messy political machinations on the ground. Our job is simply to do the law. And it's up to other agencies to determine whether uh, peace ensues and, and, and whether there's prosperity on the ground. So there's a kind of a, a changing rhetoric, I guess, within the court over time. But I think what this has led to is, is a confusion about what its obligations are to people on the ground who've actually lived through uh, these, these, these crimes in the first place. There's a deep scepticism, for example, about holding any of these uh, judicial hearings in the countries uh, under consideration. So that's often been suggested as one way for the court to start to have a tangible impact upon people who've lived through the crimes. One argument is you could hold these hearings actually in Uganda or in Congo. The, um, the prosecutor's office in particular has scotched any kind of talk about that. Uh, outreach, which of course is a big component of all international courts, in the case of the ICC really has been an afterthought. It's often happened a long way down the line. In the case of Uganda and Congo, it's tended to happen a year, or in, in Congo's case, two years after investigations were opened. And I've gone to ICC outreach uh, um, meetings and what tends to happen is that someone often from the registry will read out from the ICC's website uh, exactly what this court is all about, often to a, a kind of a fairly sceptical local audience. And there has been a real lack of engagement between the registry officials and people in the audience. So when difficult questions have been asked, there's often been an evasiveness. And it leads to an enormous amount of frustration. And I've been to now about 12 or 15 of these outreach meetings. Uh, and I think what, what that leads to is, is a, a certain resentment amongst many local people that the court isn't explaining what it's trying to do. Uh, it leads to a certain distrust um, of the court, especially when it's coupled with the fact that the court is not dealing with state actors. So that there's a kind of an inherent scepticism that many affected communities in Uganda and Congo will have when they see international justice coming in and not dealing with government cases. And when you couple that with very poor outreach strategies, it leads to fundamental distrust, which also doesn't help the court itself. Uh, because if the court then, particularly the prosecutor's office, tries to find witnesses, tries to gather evidence, it relies heavily on the trust and cooperation of local people. And if it doesn't explain itself clearly in the way that it hasn't, it also causes real headaches for itself. So to conclude, where does this leave us? Um, I've given you, I think, a fairly pessimistic uh, perspective on where the ICC is in Africa today. And I think a lot of this stems from certain ideas of distant or, or remote justice. I think this is actually a really crunch moment for the court. I, I think the court perhaps hasn't admitted this entirely to itself, but I think in many ways it's in real trouble. Uh, it's in real trouble in the terms of its main audiences on the ground in Africa, where I think even broadly speaking we're seeing massive scepticism. But perhaps most importantly for the court, it's hearing scepticism from many of its own supporters and a real scepticism from the legal uh, community that was there in Rome in 1998 and was so optimistic about uh, this institution being built. 
Uh, you can look at the Human Rights Watch report um, on the ICC three years ago to see so many concerns about the court's work in Africa being voiced by one of the court's most ardent supporters. So I think what's difficult for the ICC here, whether it wants, whether it wants to admit it or not, is that many of its, its key backers are becoming, to a certain extent, disillusioned with it. So I think it's left with two choices. One is that it either reforms itself fundamentally, uh, or we, uh, and I say we here, what I really mean is donors and, and people uh, who, who fund justice enterprises need to look elsewhere, and they need to kind of leave the ICC behind. If the court was to be reformed, and I'm a little bit doubtful that it can be, given many of the kind of conceptual impediments and many of its own sort of self-definitions, which I think, in fact, kind of make it uh, reluctant to reform, uh, I think the court would have to try and overcome some of these issues of remoteness and its distance that I've articulated here. In many ways, it would have to be more deferential uh, to local populations and to local justice processes. It would have to be more deliberative, and it would certainly have to be more communicative. It would have to change its personnel. I, think, I don't think it could continue to be a global court operating in the global south uh, without much more local expertise. This idea that you can have generalist uh, specialists with a certain technical skill set doing this kind of work, I think is really foolish. What's amazing to me is that that was a lesson that came out of the ad hoc tribunals for Rwanda in the former Yugoslavia. And there's so much literature that points to the increased quality of justice, the increased quality of both the prosecution and the defence in the Yugoslav and the Rwandan tribunals, when they started to involve local investigators, local experts, and all the rest of it, these lessons have already been learned. So in many ways, I think the ICC is a step backwards on that front. And there's a real skepticism about using a local expertise. Again, because there's a suspicion about local actors. And this is something that has come through my interview so clearly inside the court. Ethnographically, I think there is a real skepticism about using anyone from the local space a real sense that they also will be politicised, they could be manipulated, they'll be too connected to actors in the conflict, and so you need to ignore them and you need to put the hands in a kind of a, a, different, uh, a different form of personnel. To put it bluntly, it's not working, and I think the court really has to change there. The court at all levels, not just the prosecutor, has to spend more time in the field. It has to be seen to be more responsive, and it has to, it has to get to grips with the complexity of these very difficult conflict zones which is an issue not just for the ICC, but also for the Assembly of States parties that supports the court. I was in a meeting at the Foreign Office last week talking about the ICC in Africa, and a very senior FCO official uh, said, on the record, he said, well, we, we pay way too much for the court already. This thing's too expensive. In fact, we're going to the Assembly of States parties saying we've got to streamline it. And I looked at him and I said, I just, personally, I think you're really wrong. I think you're really wrong. I agree international justice is expensive. But that's unavoidable. If you want this institution to work, you've got to fund it. And a lot of the court's missteps aren't just philosophical. They aren't just about their own self-understanding, although I think that's a big part of it. It's also financial. It's also resource-driven. And I said, in particular, prosecutorial and defence investigative teams on the ground have to be bolstered, and you've got to pay for it. And especially if you're going to get local expertise in, you've got to pay for it, and it's going to be expensive. I'm not sure that the backers of the court are serious about doing that. I think the court would have to hold in situ hearings. I think it would have to close the physical distance between The Hague and the places where it investigates if it's going to have any kind of meaningful impact, uh, especially if local communities are going to be affected by these processes. Having them a million miles away doesn't work. And we should have learned that, I really think, from the, from the Rwandan case, where there's so much qualitative uh, research that shows that there's scepticism amongst so many actors in Rwanda because of their own feeling of detachment from the justice um, that's, that's, that's expressed in, in, in Arusha. So 
hearings inside the country, I think, make a real big difference in that sense. And the thing that's perhaps most uh, difficult for the ICC to swallow is that increasingly it might have to grapple with the fact that many African states are starting to get their act together in terms of the justice game, and it may have to show more deference to that. Um, and the Al Sanusi and the Bagbo cases, I think, are just the first um, in, in that trend. Uh, and so the court may also have to re-articulate its relationship with domestic judicial bodies and may have to get out of the way. So I think that's some of the reform agenda. The final thing to say is, if the ICC refuses to go down a certain reform agenda, there's an alternative that remains, and that is for donors to kind of, to a certain extent, to get a bit lukewarm about international criminal law. I don't think the ICC is ever going to melt away. Too many people are invested in it. <laughs> Too many people have kind of built careers around it. International lawyers as a kind of epistemic community are pretty uh, fearsome and, and forceful and are unlikely to let this thing die. Um, but donors have, have another angle they can go down, and that is to do the kind of thing that the EU has been trying to do in Ituri, which is to put resources into domestic institutions. And there's a reason for that, which is the supposed value add of international justice, ultimately, is that it's supposed to get us out of this politicisation. The reason it's supposedly superior to domestic justice, as I said at the start, is that it's supposedly insulated from corruption and political influence on the ground. But what we've seen, and Uganda and Congo are just two examples of that, is that in actual fact, international justice can't claim that any longer. So if it's failing on that level, a big question here is, is it any better than any of the domestic processes? Is it, is it in fact delivering a higher standard of justice? And I think in the case of Ituri, I don't think we could argue that. In fact, I think we've seen something go on in Congolese courts that very few people expected 10 years ago, but that seems to be outstripping the ICC in terms of delivering some kind of serious justice. So if that's the case, it should beg some very serious questions. And I think one conclusion would be that we kind of leave the ICC just to kind of muddle along in the background and donors put a lot more money into things like the, the Aturi Court. We've also seen mobile gender units used in other parts of Congo, another form of domestic process, a really interesting collaboration between domestic Congolese judicial actors the American Bar Association and the Open Society Justice Initiative. It's a kind of hybrid institution that, you know, we don't have enough information on it yet, I don't think, to, to say whether this is having the impact that it wanted to. But it showed that justice could take different forms in Africa. The Rwandan courts, now this is very controversial to say at the moment, but the Rwandan courts are at a stage now where I really think they're up to scratch in terms of dealing with really serious genocide cases. And it's why we're starting to see extraditions to Rwanda from, from Norway, from Denmark, and potentially from the UK in, in, in the months to come. Because we're seeing a reform process on the ground that is getting African courts to the stages where they can deal with these kind of serious crimes. If that's the case, aren't we getting to the kind of thing that Ocampo told us we were supposed to get when the court was first built, which was the ICC would be a success if it didn't have any cases, because things would be dealt with at the local level. My sense at the moment is we should take Ocampo seriously and say, well, you're right. A lot of African courts are starting to get their house in order. Uh, international lawyers might not like this too much. It might put them out of work. Uh, but that seems to be where a lot of domestic momentum is at the moment. Those courts are going to have massive problems, no doubt about it. But I'm not convinced that domestic justice faces issues of politicisation that are any more severe than what the ICC is facing. And they have the advantage of not being distant, of not being remote of taking place in the places where crimes were committed and where affected communities can observe them, and that is their inherent advantage, and the international community should make more of that.
Um, so I've rambled extraordinarily. I hope that's vaguely coherent. I apologise, Miles, for talking for as long as I have, but uh, thanks very much. <laughs>